This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist is a home of book summaries, a great learning platform that gives you the key insights from some of the most popular books in the world. Yeah, right now they've got over 3,000 non-fiction books there. So they're better known as Blinks when you sign up to it. And in about 10 to 15 minutes, you can get through a whole entire book to learn all the best need-to-know information in a short period of time which for a lot of books is a better option than going out there and buying it and trolling through 300 pages just to get to the same end point. And if you like some of the ideas, you might prefer to go off and uh, buy it yourself. It's a great way to learn a whole bunch of things in a short amount of time. And right now, using our code, you can get a free trial of Blinkist. Check it out for yourself. See how you can learn more. See how you can fit it into your daily schedule. Head to Blinkist.com slash what you will learn for a free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash what you will learn. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton, and today I am interviewing Derek Sivers. Derek Sivers is the author of the book, Anything You Want, which was the very, very first ever episode of the What You Will Learn podcast all the way back in June 2016. So almost four years later, I had the pleasure of speaking to the guy that started it all. He's got three brand new books coming out later this year, Your Music and People, Hell Yeah or No, and the one I'm probably most excited for, How to Live. In this episode, we talk about pop philosophy, what it means to be a philosopher, uh, whether that's a, a definition or a description that one wants to take on or not. We talked about considering all the different angles, giving an answer, but then questioning it, considering a different possible answer to the same question. We then spoke about books. We spoke a hell of a lot about books. We nerded out about books, what makes a good book, what are the next books you should read, what books would Derek recommend, and of course, finishing off with some of Derek's favorite books. Hope you enjoy this interview with Derek Sivers. Derek Sivers, uh, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Firstly, I do have to say a very big thank you in that reading anything you want uh, was an important read for me and that it sort of shook me out of a bunch of beliefs I had around entrepreneurship uh, and from all the different books that I'd read and anything you want gave a very opposite but also true way of looking at the same problems. Uh, but then secondly, uh, for the podcast, What You Will Learn, Anything You Want was our first ever episode back in June 2016, almost four years ago now. Uh, so oh. this is the book that kickstarted it all. So thank you so much for that book. I had no idea. Thank you. I mean, I, it's funny, I researched your podcast, but of course, whenever I look into it, I'm looking at recent episodes. I had no idea it was your first. Thank you. It was wow. a, the very first one. And uh, admittedly, it was not the best one, of course. Uh, <laughs> we, it's very different now. Literally, at that, that time, we hit start, like we hit record, we talked for 20 minutes, and we hit stop, and then we published. And that was, it took us about 22 minutes to do that first episode, the two minutes of publishing. Um, it's so but, cool, though. But we've, we've evolved a lot, but it was a, it was a perfect one to start with. Um, so thank you so much. I wish more people would do that to get over the creative hurdle of the first release. My favorite example of this is from a couple decades ago now, but Sean Lennon, uh, who was John Lennon's uh, younger son, ever since he was born, as early as he could remember, 
I read in an interview that people had been asking him, like, well, little Sean, when are you going to record your music? When can I hear your music? And he said he felt such pressure his whole life. Like, oh, my God, my record has to be a masterpiece when I finally make my first album. So apparently just one week, he was just like, you know what? I'm sick of this pressure. I'm going to go make a record this week. And he just did it. He didn't love it. And he just put it out. And he's like, there. Now, now I've That's gotten it. past the first release. Now I can just improve from here. That's so good. I suppose we had slightly less pressure on us than not <laughs> carrying that name Lennon. Uh, yeah, but I guess I guess it's good to have uh, someone who's done a similar sort of a thing. Uh, now, I was recently on a another podcast. One of the listeners of ours actually Owen's podcast. Jones and I went on, and one of his questions at the end was, "Who is your favorite philosopher?" And I love Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I love The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. But I kind of felt like a bit pretentious to pick one of those guys or to pick you know, one of those other famous names when I, I haven't really read their stuff. I don't really know what they're all about. So I said Derek Sivers. And I would say that you are my favorite philosopher. Uh, would you call yourself a philosopher? <laughs> well, first, uh, holy shit. Thank you. That's a great compliment. Um as for calling myself a philosopher, uh, I have mixed feelings on this. Technically, I guess I am, but I would never say so. <laughs> like if a stranger asked, what do you do? I would find it so pompous to say, I'm a philosopher. So I think that the mixed feelings come from the word philosopher having two definitions, right? And two implications. Like, if you, I think the Wikipedia page on philosopher says, in the classical sense, a philosopher was someone who lived according to a certain way of life, someone who challenges what is thought to be common sense, doesn't stop asking questions, and re-examines the old ways of thought. But then it says, in a modern sense, a philosopher is an intellectual who has contributed in one or more branches of philosophy. So, in the classical sense, yeah, all right, that sounds like me. But in the modern sense, like, no, I haven't contributed to the field of philosophy at all. Mm. But, hey, you know, maybe that's something to aspire to. But then it's almost but, like the, the philosophy is a set in, set in stone. You can't create a new one. You're only a philosopher if you contribute <laughs> to the old ones. Right, exactly. Uh, which, that's why I figure, like, if somebody were to say, I'm a philosopher, it would be like, well... No, you aren't, because I've never heard of you. <laughs> if you were a philosopher, you would be in the books. You're not a philosopher until you're in the books. But also, doesn't it feel like that, that there should be a target to that definition? Like, we don't say someone is a lover. We say they're a lover of something. Mm. You know, we don't say somebody is an aficionado. It just implies like there in, there's a target to that mm. focus. So maybe a philosopher of something, right? Like Peter Thiel is a philosopher of business. Mm. Uh, Brian Eno is my favorite philosopher of music. Uh, Pema Chodron is a philosopher of acceptance. And Seth Godin, I'm curious to hear what you think he'd be a philosopher of. Uh, well, the obvious one is a philosopher of marketing. I guess that's what he's most well known for. But these days, he's definitely pushing more towards a philosopher of modern culture, I guess. Yeah, I would think so too. And it, But if you, if you talk to him, he, 
He says like his main focus in his whole life is making change. So that's what he wanted to keep being a summer camp counselor. And it was his wife who wanted to live in New York City and he wanted to live with her. So, oh, well, you know, no more summer camp. It was too <laughs> far away. So he started writing books. And But he says that the common thread in his, li- his life is making change. So I think he might be a philosopher of change. I think Ooh. that actually might be like the common thread in his work. But um, Nassim Taleb, a philosopher of probability. And I think Andy Warhol was a great philosopher of art. I don't think it's really his art that we like. It's just he had a philosophy of art that we liked. Um, so yeah, I, li- I like thinking of these people as like philosophers of things. And I think I'm just recently realizing how much Brian Eno um, influenced my thought on many things. Interesting. I like it. And I like that you mentioned Nassim Taleb Jones. You will obviously like that you mentioned Nassim Taleb. That was his answer to his favorite philosopher. And oh, I, cool. sort of, I sort of get the feeling that Nassim Taleb would classify himself as a philosopher. I don't know. That's just the, the, the feeling I get from <laughs> he some He has of his that arrogance, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Most certainly. Uh, I did like, in your, back to your original definition of the ancient philosopher, what an old philosopher was, it was you were talking about you know, questioning the assumptions and, and thinking about the way of, of doing things things. I think that's definitely you to a T. And especially when it comes to, if someone asks a question, you'll you'll give an answer, but then you'll say, but that's just one answer to one specific situation. And that there really is no one size fits all solutions to anybody's problems. And I feel like you're always looking for uh, a different answer or to question the answer that you just gave. Well, yeah, that's like my favorite pastime. <laughs> it's, I think of it as thinking games, right? Like I'm never trying to be accurate. I'm never trying to figure out the right answer to the problem of life. No, instead, I, I find it more fun to just keep thinking of other perspectives, right? It's, it's play. It's fun. It's not about being accurate. It's about being creative to deliberately find another point of view. Um, do you know what a spirograph is? Spirograph. You, you might know this thing. Did you ever have uh, in Australia like those little plastic cog wheels and you'd put a pen in the dot and you'd kind of put mm. one cog inside another cog and dr- trace it? Interesting. I just did a quick Google search and it, they look awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, if you don't mind in the show notes, link to Spirograph. Um, so, the deal is with the Spirograph is it you put your pen, you put, there's a big round cog outside and then you put different size cogs inside and they have a hole where you put your pen. And so the deal is that as you spin it around the cog, it ideally doesn't go exactly opposite. Instead, it goes like almost opposite on each rotation, like a 170 mm-hmm. degree turn instead of a 180 degree turn. So that each time, if you keep going around and around and around and around, with each flip, you're seeing it a little differently. It's not landing exactly opposite. So I'm fascinated with the idea of opposite, but not 180 degree opposite. I like the idea of 170 degree opposite mm. so that you can keep going, right? Like keep flipping and it keeps being different each time. So um, I play these little creative games with friends and with my kid too, where we say like, what is the opposite of this? What is the opposite of that? Um, 
I asked my musician friends, like, what's the opposite of music? And we had a fun time coming up with a fun answer, which is not silence and it's not noise, but the opposite of music is business. Ooh. So then what's the opposite of business? Mm, charity. What's the opposite of charity? Greed. What's the opposite of greed? Generosity. What's the opposite of generosity? Fear. What's the opposite of fear? Love. What's the opposite of love? Seduction. <laughs> and I like this because it's opinionated, right? Like if you say the opposite of love is seduction, well, there's an implied philosophy and strong opinion if you say that seduction is the opposite of love. Mm. Mm. But then someone could, of course, argue uh, in some wonderful poetic way that seduction is love. And both people could be right, right? So it's not about we're trying to be accurate mm. here. Um, so I think that what's interesting about opposites is that you, the creative part is choosing what aspect to make opposite, right? Like if you're saying the opposite of love is seduction, well then mm. it makes you say, well, how so? What aspect of seduction are you saying is the opposite of love? So, um, my kid and I did, uh, what's the opposite of a mountain, we don't, hmm, is it a meadow? Because it's not jagged, it's flat? Well, maybe. Like, how about a crater, like a sinkhole? Mm. Yeah, that could be the opposite of a mountain. But then our favorite answer was quicksand. Ooh, um, okay. Because, at least, you know, the fictional quicksand that we see in cartoons. <laughs> that you're walking yeah. through and <laughs> you're stuck and it pulls you all the way underground. Because that focuses on the challenge aspect of a mountain, Right, like the effort to get up a mountain, it takes continuous effort. And if you were to just give up, you'd tumble down, right? Whereas quicksand pulls you in even against your will, but a mountain takes great will to climb up it. So it's like, why would I choose quicksand as the opposite of a mountain? Well, because it's more fun. It's it's a more amusing and interesting thought. So mm. yeah, I think I do the same in all subjects every day. Whenever I hear somebody talk about how you know, it's important to be kind. And I think, hmm, hmm. is it? <laughs> <laughs> when is it not? Let's, let's explore. What's the opposite of that? What is kind to me? What's the opposite of kind? You know, whatever it may be. What aspect do you want to focus on here? Mm. Um, these are just fun mind games. I like it a lot. And it was completely unintentional. Uh, but the episode immediately prior to this was a whack on the side of the head. <gasps> And right. so that was going to go up earlier, but with the whole coronavirus, we shuffled the order of episodes and stuff and completely unintentionally, that was one of the elements of it was he was talking about these creative exercises and pushing yourself to think to, you, you know, you've got an answer, what's the next right answer? What's the, what's the third answer mm. after that? So completely unintentional to uh, put a, a nice little synergy there that, they, so that <laughs> these episodes worked out to go in the, in the exact right order. So I think that, that was a, well, it's a good cool. exercise. But it, I only, like I said, I just very recently realized what an influence um, music thinkers like Brian Eno and John Cage have had on my approach to life. Like, I'm not looking for the right answer in life. I'm looking for, like, what's another interesting way of looking at this? Because that's what musicians are all about. You know, Brian Eno's in the studio constantly just recording album after album, either for himself or for other artists. And constantly just looking for, like, how can we make this different? How can we make this surprising? How can we take what you came in here with and come out with something else? Um, 
So I think I end up taking that approach to life. I like it. I like it. A bit of a, a it might seem like a sidestep, but it's, I'm hoping in my, in my planet arcs back around. One of my favorite <laughs> episodes of your podcast, which is the audio version of your blog, is how I got rich on the other hand. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you tell us a bit about that blog post? Sure. Well, if you don't mind, what did you like about it? Well, firstly, I like the how to get rich, as in the very obvious surface level how to get rich, but then there's a much deeper answer, uh, the real way to get rich. But then I also like the element of, of magic, that magicians are <laughs> always doing one thing with, with one hand, but the real work is going on on the other hand. Cool. Um, yeah, thanks, sir. Sometimes I write things and I forget afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I don't usually talk about money with my friends, but that was sparked by a friend who uh, said, hey, can I ask you a weird question? I said, mm, of course. <laughs> he said, so what was it like to get rich? And he really wanted the specifics. Like, he didn't want to quip. He wanted the whole story. So I told him my whole story, you know. Uh, all right, I was 22 years old, and I had this day job in midtown Manhattan. I was making 20000 a year, so like basically minimum wage. And I was performing at the circus on weekends and uh, I'd earn about 300 bucks per weekend. Uh, my rent in New York City at the time was 333 bucks a month because I had three roommates in sharing a flat. I made peanut butter sandwiches three times a day and that's all I ate, maybe some eggs. Uh, never ate out, never took a taxi. So I was able to keep my cost of living down under $1,000 a month. And since I was earning about 1800 and did this for two years, I saved up $12,000 by the time I was 22 years old. And um, yeah, I said, so that's it. Like, that's when I quit my job. That's when I've been free. That was the last time I had a job. And um, yeah, that was it. And he goes, <laughs> dude, no, I mean, like, what about when you sold your company? Like, you made millions. And I went, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but that was just the details. Like, that wasn't, that wasn't when I became rich. I became rich when I was 22, because that's when I had $12,000 saved up, which was more than I needed. And I've never touched that 12000 since. Like, to me, being rich is, it's not how much you bring in. It's the difference between what you spend and what you have. Um if you have more than you spend, then you're rich. Like if you never touch that $12,000, well, then I'm rich. But on the other hand, no matter how much you bring in, if you spend more than that, well, then you're not rich. So if you live cheaply, it's easy to be free. Um, so I think the magician aspect was thinking about how... Um, I don't know a damn thing about magic, but from what I hear, <laughs> the magicians are often kind of doing something very uh, distracting and flamboyant with one hand while the, the humble hand is down here uh, by their side, actually, you know, hiding the thing or whatever. So uh, they wave one hand around to get your attention, but it's the other hand down there that's actually doing the trick. So I say that to be smart, watch the other hand. So yeah, we're all focused on how can I make money? How can I bring in more money? But I think the real trick is in the spending. Mm, I like that a lot. And then uh, as this sort of comes back around, so I was reading through the comments of that post and then a lot of people were saying, 
Yeah, that's awesome. I totally agree. Yeah, it's so good to be able to live cheaply and then not have to be fueled by possessions and not have this constant, you know, I can jump off the hedonic treadmill and, and you know, I don't have to be desperately watching these rich and famous people wishing I could be them. And then this is where you gave the opposite opinion as well, where you said, well, maybe for some people that need and that desire to get rich and buy lots of luxurious things actually drives them. It fuels them to achieve more. They work really hard. They make lots of money. They can actually give back or they can create an awesome business that helps the whole world. So you've sort of like countered your own answer Ah, within that post. I didn't remember that. (laughs) That was in the comments to that article? That was in the comments. So it was a whole bunch of comments and then you replied to one of them. Cool. Yeah. I mean... um yeah, thanks. I f- totally forget. I was wondering where you were making the comparison with the opposite. Uh, now I get it. All right. So yeah, I do. I do I still mean, love that blog post. I think it's an important lesson as well. And then the meta lesson thanks. of the opposite. Yeah, um, motivation matters a lot. Uh, it's funny. I once met the pop star um, Regina Spector. Um, she was one of my clients for years, but we had never met. And then we were at the TED conference uh, in 2010 or so. And I met her. I was like, whoa, Regina Spector, finally we meet. And so we just like sat around talking for hours. And I said like, so now that you're all famous, I said, do you ever miss how much you would like hustle to make a hundred bucks at a gig? She was like, yeah. I was like, I know that's a weird thing about like, once you have plenty of money, like the joy of making a hundred bucks can go away a bit. Like my early years as a musician, I would work so hard to like find a way to make $200 instead of $150 (laughs) at a gig. And I'd get such a joy if I found a way to like, you know, talk up my, my rates to make 200 bucks or sell 20 CDs at the gig instead of merely five, you know, I'd get such excitement from that. And sometimes when you have uh, too much money, you can lose that joy. So it's kind of funny that we were like commiserating about um, <laughs> that. So yeah, motivation matters a lot. And yeah, despite what I may say about, you know, watch the other hand, you know, cut your spending, live frugally, don't worry about what comes in, focus on what goes out. Then yeah, if that doesn't motivate you, well, then, you know, maybe you need to be motivated by the daydreaming of having a, of having a Ferrari or something, you know, and if that makes you go add more value to the world, well then, all right, rock on. <laughs> I love it. Now, I've, I've made this uh, this mind map here, which is, I've called Everything I Ever Wanted to Ask Derek Sivers Part 1. And it's... Um, <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> it's a, I've got about uh, 30,000 words in this mind map, so we're clearly not going to get to it all. There's one more uh, thing that I want to talk about before we get into the books section and talking more about books. And this was one of your other posts or one of your other podcasts podcast episodes and uh the how i got rich one that, that we mentioned was like an, an instant i loved it straight away this other one i was a bit so so on at first and it was when i revisited it and, and thought about it again and then i was uh, in the weeks after i was still thinking about it and still coming up with more other ideas and that was the idea of meta considerate and so would you be able to tell uh, a bit about that blog post and then I've got a, I've got a couple of my own examples that I finally after weeks or, or months of thinking about this I, I realized that actually this is a great idea. Sure. Um, now that I know you're going somewhere with this I'll be a little <laughs> more succinct. <laughs> okay, so the meta-considerate idea is most easily applied or easy to see with uh, dating and uh, romance and such is 
a friend of mine was telling me his story about this woman he had a crush on, and I knew her too. I was friends with both of them. And he was putting her up onto such a pedestal. Um, yeah, just saying that, you know, oh my God, if if only she would talk to me, if only this, if only she would give me, she's the most amazing woman that ever lived, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, don't do that. He said, don't do what? I said, you're you're lowering your own value by raising her up so high. I said, in the physical metaphor, if you lift somebody up on a pedestal, you make them look down on you. I said, she doesn't want to be with somebody that she's looking down on. She doesn't want to be with somebody that says, you know, if only I was worthy to be with you. I said, no, she also aspires to be with somebody that's up above her. And you're you're making it clear in your every action word that you don't think of yourself as... Uh, on her level in any way, let alone above her. And I said, you're, you think you're being considerate, but I said, I think you're being meta-inconsiderate. And I think it's actually meta-considerate to let somebody chase you a bit, to let somebody long to be with you, or let somebody aspire to be with you. Um, so that's where the idea came from. But I think of it a lot in parenting, you know, uh, you may think of it as considerate, as in giving your kid what they want, but it's meta-inconsiderate, you know? It may be meta-considerate to help them learn uh, that uh, they don't need a reward to do work, um, things like that. So I think of the subject a lot as applied to many things in, I guess in it's always a social interaction thing, right? Cons- considerate and inconsiderate are ideas that are, targeted on somebody else. It's like a, a social word. I don't think just sitting alone with yourself, you can be considerate and inconsiderate. That's kind of a different word, I guess. Mm. There's the idea. I'm curious where you're going with this. Well, I was. I had a few thoughts of how this applied and some of them came in like I was either when I was driving or someone I was in the shower or they just, for, <laughs> for some reason, this episode really just stuck with me, even though I, at first I, I thought... I only saw the surface level of how it applied to that, you know, dating or relationships or parenting. But then I thought of uh, a few examples. Uh, one is buying a gift for someone, especially like a, a close partner where it's not as extravagant. Maybe you've been buying this person gifts for years, a family member, or a partner, where it might be considerate to tell them exactly what you want. This is what I want this year. Uh, this is where you can get it. It's very considerate. It makes things easy. They get what they want. You're off the hook. Uh, from having to think of something. But then I think it's meta-considerate to not make it so easy so that the person giving the gift has to think a bit harder, uh, has to actually consider the the wants and the needs and, and think of something a bit more from the heart. And I think the recipient, in most cases, maybe they're worried about getting a dodgy gift, but I think the recipient would prefer a gift the person thought of rather than the gift that they just told them to get. Mm. I like that. You know, what that reminds me of is this idea of don't add your two cents. Do you have that slang phrase in Australia? Yeah. yeah, Let me just add my two cents. Okay. So for those listeners that might not know the phrase, if you say, let me just add my two cents, it means, okay, that's, I agree with everything you've just said, but let me just add a little bit more to that idea. Um, So Marshall Goldsmith wrote this brilliant book called what got you here won't get you there. It's a book about leadership, uh, kind of written towards somebody who's already a successful, um, say, leader of people. And 
his best bit of advice in there, the, the bit that struck me the hardest is where he said, don't add your two cents. And here's why. If one of your employees comes to you with a project that they've worked on and present it for your consideration, it's tempting to think you need to add a little something to it to just leave your comment. But he said, when you do, they now feel that you've given them an order and now this project that was 100% theirs mm. this morning is now less theirs and more yours. And they're not going to have the same enthusiasm to follow through with it as they would if you would have just kept your mouth shut and let them own it completely. Even if you felt that what you could say would be an improvement, don't. Just keep your mouth shut and let them own it completely. So that's like, yeah, you'd think it would be considerate to add your two cents, but it's meta-considerate to keep your mouth shut and not add your two cents. Yes, I like that a lot. And I just realized my boss did that to me uh, recently. Um, it could have been just he was too busy or he was running short on time, but I'll give him the credit to say maybe that's what he was doing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've all felt that when it's like, you know, you have something that you are excited about and you bring it to somebody else and they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, that could be good if you just so-and-so and then they give some little thing and you go, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. okay, all right. Yeah, it's, it, it drains your motivation a bit. It, I don't know, it's, it's tough remembering with all the things. When you read lots of books which are all universal and applied to the human condition and all of that, it's, it's hard to keep remembering that feelings matter, <laughs> motivation mm. matters. Yeah, I like that. So one of the other ones was related to feedback uh, and specifically feedback for a book that we've been putting together. But feedback, I think you can extrapolate this to feedback in general. So I think considerate feedback is just you know, soft and gentle, cushion the blow a little bit. In this specific case, someone, we, we sent some listeners who were interested in checking it out. We sent them, you know, 10% of the book that they could read. And so consider it would just be replying and saying, you know, this was good. I enjoyed reading it. But I think meta considerate feedback is very direct, very honest, letting the person feel a little bit of pain, but then giving them a clear way to improve. So I think meta-considerate feedback, which is what pretty much everybody did who sent us feedback, was saying, this is good, but this could be better. Or, you know, if you change mm. this or if you did this a little bit differently, I think it would make it a lot better. Cool. I heard that Walt Disney in the early days had a board with whatever they were working on. It was posted on cork boards in the hallway with a a constant ask there above it, just saying, how can we improve this? Mm. Um, just anybody, how can we improve how can it? They, how can anybody add their two cents to that idea? <laughs> <laughs> right, which if you're asking for it, I guess, well, if, if you're, I guess, you know, that could be a bit of a power thing, right? Like if the mm. boss is saying, please, everyone, tell us how we can improve this. Well, okay, now you've been given leeway for everybody to contribute. I like it. And then my, my final one that, that, that came to me about this was I think that the What You Will Learn podcast, our episodes, where at the start it was all about, you know, hey, there's these 300-page books out there. Uh, there's three or four core ideas. Let's give you – let's just tell you those three or four core ideas. You know, there's all these stories and the anecdotes and the studies that all back this up. Let's edit those out and just get straight to the point. Uh, I think maybe that's considerate so that, you know, people didn't have to read the books. We can give them the best stuff. But I think now we've moved towards meta-considerate where we're actually leaving in the exact right amount of that stuff. So enough of the story, enough glimpse of the study that back this up that sort of gives people the tension, it allows 
allows them to learn and discover it for themselves. So they're sort of surprised by the lesson when it comes rather than just whacking them over the head mm. with the lesson. I often think of book notes as the punchline of mm. the joke. That if you already know the joke, then somebody can just say, you know, and then the duck says, who's this guy? You know, and you go, oh, yeah, I remember that one. So book notes are just the punchline. But if you haven't read the joke leading up to it, then it has almost no impact. And so yeah, my, my book notes that are on my site are absolutely not meant as a summary of the book at all. They're just the punchlines that hit me that I'm saving for my own personal use to reflect on later. Uh, like, my book notes are not for anybody else's sake but my own. Uh, they're just, yeah, the bits that hit me. I'm not trying to summarize the book at all. So it's weird when people tell me that they like my book summaries, or, or it hurts me when people say, uh, man, thanks so much for posting those summaries so I don't have to read the book. <laughs> no, you've missed the whole point. I just... I'm just sharing my personal notes from that book. And if you think the notes sound interesting, please go read the book. Fantastic. Well, I think that's the, the perfect segue to, to start talking more about books and your site, sivers.org slash book. It was uh, one of those first ones, first of its kind that I came across that really, I was like, damn, this is awesome. I should maybe try to do something similar, which is obviously where, where <laughs> we've headed towards. But you're obviously a big book lover. I've listened to uh, all of your podcast episodes, all the interviews you've done, and there's inevitably you know, one of those questions, if you're starting out with nothing, no one knew your name, no one knew what you looked like, you had 500 bucks in your pocket, your company was gone, you had, you had no skills, you had nothing, what would you do? And your answer is often, you know, go read this book, read it all, do exactly what it says, follow the instructions of the book, and that's what I do. So, I feel like a lot of the time you often answer a question with, hey, go read this book and do exactly everything it says. And so few do. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Uh, I guess what's sort of sparked your love of books or, or why do you read? Oh, God. Um, yeah, I was trying to solve a problem. I mean, I wanted desperately. I started reading when I was a teenager because I wanted so badly to be a successful musician that I would read books at first on how to be a successful musician. There was, uh, God, James Riordan, Making It in the New Music Business. That, must, that book must have been, wow, early 80s, mid 80s, something like that. God, even before that, there was a book called The Platinum Rainbow that was probably in the 70s even, like a guide to the music business. And, oh man, I would just devour every word of these things. This was like, these books contained the key on how I could be a rock star, right? But then the first big uh, general punch to the gut, open, you know, blow my mind book was Tony Robbins' mm. Awaken the Giant Within. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, oh my God, it just opened my mind. It just like, you know, that, that massive way of thinking bigger and, and all these philosophies around the idea that... Uh, that feelings are just, uh, there's something that you can do something about. You know, we often say, well, I can't help the way I feel. And Tony Robbins' whole thing is, uh, yes, you can help the way you feel. If it's not serving you, then stop doing it. Think about what beliefs you would need to have to be the person you want to be, and then 
make yourself have those beliefs. Think of uh, supporting beliefs that would help you think that way. And, you know, just all of this, just, uh, I felt like it was helping me achieve my dreams. And then I started reading books on marketing because I wanted to be more successful. And only later did that branch out into other subjects that weren't just direct problem solving. But you know, most of my, let's say my first 10 years of reading books were just problem solving. I like it. And in, in your eyes, uh, Jones, you know, I've had a couple of wars about this, a couple of discussions that we've nearly come to blows on. Uh, what What is a good book? What, what would you classify as a good book? What does a book need to have or need to do or need to be in order for you to say, hey, that was a, that was a good book. That was worth reading. Dead easy. A good book changes my mind. A great book changes my actions. But then notice whose job it is to change a good book into a great book. Like if you speed through a list of books and say, there, I read those. Well, Mm. then you've missed the point. You have to apply what you've learned to your life. And that takes deliberate reflection which means going through what you've learned and thinking of how you could apply this to different aspects of your life. And it also usually takes metaphorical thinking, right? Like a book on tennis might have the best metaphorical insights that you could apply to parenting or something, Mm. right? Um, I like books that tell me what to do, but most authors don't want to be so presumptuous Right, like um, I loved the book, The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz, mm. but he spent the whole book describing the problem <laughs> of choice and having too much selection. And then this made such an impact on me. Oh, it was only in the last chapter mm. he said, "Well, now we've come to the last chapter, and my editor says that since I spent the whole book describing the problem, <laughs> I should at least offer a little solution." And of course, that was my favorite chapter. And it was only like 10 uh, pages. I, right. So I m- might have been able to figure out those solutions for myself, but it was really nice to have it clearly spelled out. Um, so I used to think that it was important to retain what I read, right? Like I thought I needed to memorize it. Mm. But now I realize that I don't need to retain it. I need to review it. I need to reflect on it. And I need to apply it. And that's what turns a good book into a great book. Oh, yes. I like that a lot. I think especially for for two blokes that power through a book or more every single week, I think we do need to uh, remember that application level as well, not just the information, uh, but what do we actually do with that information. So I think that's, a, I think that's an important reminder to anyone who loves reading books. Uh, the next question I wanted to ask was in terms of uh, reading books and your site has recommendations, you know, you give a rating out of 10. Uh, I think it says how much I recommend this book. Uh, I was wondering, is there a difference between how you rate it yourself versus how much you recommend it? So I'd say like uh, – to, to give a, a bit of, of thinking space. Like I, both of us, we love The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. We both rate that 10 out of 10. But 
it's massive. It's 600 pages. It's some, some deep, dark human shit that maybe it's <laughs> not that good for somebody to read straight up. So whilst we give it a 10 out of 10, if someone says, what, what's the first book I should read? We wouldn't recommend that. Uh, I know Adam Jones loves his Jared Diamond collapse, Guns, Germ, Steel. He gives those 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, but they're 700 pages. I, I, I don't think he would recommend that for a beginner. If you contrast that with, say, The Compound Effect, by Darren Hardy. Right. I think that's like I think that's like 150 130 pages, I don't know. It's uh, really great advice, especially at the very start of your reading journey, but I think maybe if you'd read 200 books, it's probably like yeah, I've, I've read all this before. It's sort of obvious and boring whereas so I think it's sort of different how much I would rate it for myself and how much I would recommend it for somebody else as well. Yeah, you nailed it. I don't really have much more to add to that, um, <laughs> that if it seems like it's going to be of general interest, then I'm more likely to recommend it to others. But I've read some wonderfully nerdy books like Au Contraire, Figuring Out the French, which is a great, fascinating book to help you understand the French culture, the French philosophy. Um, but that's me being a nerd that's interested in other <laughs> cultures. I wouldn't say, hey, everybody needs to read this. Because no, I don't think everybody needs to understand the French. But hey, if somebody's asking me, what's <laughs> the best book you've ever read on understanding another culture? <laughs> then I'd say, oh, definitely, au contraire, figuring out the French. This is the best. Um, so, you know, this idea of like core or foundational books that, you know, everyone must read this book. I think that should read and must read kind of implies that someone needs it, right? But mm. we don't know everyone's needs. So some people really need to make money, but then some people have no money problems, but they really need to make peace with their past. And some people really need to be more considerate but other people are like considerate to a fault and really need to work on their self-worth. So that's why I don't think that we can say everyone needs to read this. And like you said, time is limited. Um, if you tell someone to go that everyone must read War and Peace by Tolstoy, well then, if the person you're saying that to is perpetually broke, well then reading War and Peace is taking time away from time that they could be spending reading Think and Grow Rich or Rich Dad Poor Dad or... Entrepreneur Roller Coaster or Emith Revisited or any of these other books that could really help them in a concrete way get into a mindset to make more money, but instead they're slogging through War and Peace. So no, I don't think they need to read War and Peace. Um, so yeah, I like the idea of qualifiers for book recommendations. Like, if you're having trouble letting go of the outcome of, of a difficult situation that's out of your control, then you should read this. And if you want to start adventuring far away from home, then you should read this. Not everyone should read this. That's just too broad. Mm. Yeah, so true. So true. Is there any books that you think uh, are sort of like good beginner books or I suppose beginners almost like, hey, you're a little, a little kid. This is like the first books you should read. Uh, is there anything that you sort of see as, as broadly applicable or, or again, is it down to the, the specifics, the individual needs? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think when you read a book makes a huge difference 
Right. Definitely. Like the first time you encounter an idea, it blows your mind. But then if you go read two more books on that same subject, those you know, books two and three won't impress you as much. So book number one feels like a masterpiece, and you'll go tell everybody, oh my God, this is the best book ever. Mm. Book number three, yeah, it was okay. It was average. Mm. But if someone else read those same three books in reverse order, then they'd declare what you know as book number three to be mm. a masterpiece, and book number one is just average. So, yeah, when I met uh, Tim Ferriss back in 2000. Seven, we were comparing notes on like what book totally changed your life. The book that changed his life, I just found it to be completely average. And the book that changed my life, he found it to be completely average because it was the same thing. We realized like, oh, you know, I guess it's, that's the one I read first that opened mm. my mind to this idea of thinking big. By the time I got to your book, I was, you know, used to that idea. Um, and I think, are you referring to, I think Ferris is uh, The Magic of Thinking Big. And are you referring to yeah. uh, Awaken the Giant Within? Wow, you're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and then, uh, well, I think uh, Jonesy and I probably have the same thing with the compound effect and the slight edge, um, hmm. with, where I think they're both uh, very, very similar books. Very, The idea is basically the same, that small, tiny little decisions you make every single day, over time they compound, they add up to massive, massive differences. Uh, and we both absolutely loved both books, but the compound effect was like the 10th book I read and it was like in, mm. my, in my top 10 books for ages. And The Slight Edge, I think it's probably better. I would probably recommend that to somebody more. I think if, I, if it had been the 10th book I read, it would have been awesome, but it was like the, the, the 270th book I read. So I was like, <laughs> damn, this is, this is a cool idea, but uh, right. I, I've kind of read that, that exact same book before. I had it specifically with Daniel Gilbert's book, Stumbling on Happiness blew my mind. And so I went and read three more books on happiness, which, you know, had these kind of diminishing returns. And so the the fourth one I read on the subject, I was like, I gave it an average rating on my site. And then somebody told me later, like, oh my God, how could you call that book average, man? That book totally changed my life. I was mm. like, oh, yeah, I guess it's because it was the fourth one I read mm. on that exact specific subject by by a group that was very limited, all of them referencing Daniel Kahneman and all of them kind of <laughs> mentioning the same tests. And it's like, all right, by the time I got to that fourth book, I was over it. But it's yeah, so funny. read it in we, reverse order. We, uh, we reread uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. We first read it maybe three years ago. We reread it um, maybe six or nine months ago. And it was so funny that after we reread it, then like of the next 15 books we read, like 12 of them referenced Thinking Fast and Slow, or they, yeah. they wheeled out. This. It's one of those books that it seems like everybody's, everybody's ripping little bits off. Well, when, I've, when I read Thinking Fast and Slow, I, I had been reading books that referenced him for like 10 years before that. Mm. So finally, it was like, the master speaks. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been reading references to his work for 10 years. But yeah, I tried to go back and read Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. Because that's something, so I read... Awaken the Giant Within when I was like 19 and again when I was 21 and again when I was 23 and again when I was 25 and just over and over again I was like this book completely changed my life and so now it's like in my late 40s I tried to read it again and just I just couldn't it's like so boring I was like yeah, yeah, yeah okay I'm gonna yeah. go read something really yeah yeah I like it so as you read a lot of books what is your sort of do you have any process or how do you pick what you read next it's always to solve a current problem Right. So a current problem might be as concrete as wanting to be better at parenting or writing or 
discipline. But a current problem might be as vague as yearning for adventure or wanting to understand Finland or thinking more about silence. And I think it's funny that curiosity itself makes a mini problem, right? So last month I heard an interview with the linguist John McWhorter, and it instantly created a problem, <laughs> which was that now I wanted to know much more about linguistics. So I immediately stopped what I was reading and instead went and found uh, one of John McWhorter's books on linguistics and just dove into it because, you know, just this little tidbit of an interview just made me so curious that my curiosity was a bigger problem than whatever I was reading before. Mm. I like that a lot. And I, especially the Jones man and I, we've trying to, there's so many books on our list that we want to read. And it's just, man, what do we, what do we pick next? It's just, uh, it seems like a never ending list. And then every book you read, that curiosity gives you three more to add to the pile. And it yeah. just never, never gets any shorter. Now, wh- one question that we always ask everybody, and, and you've mentioned a couple of these, these books, and of, of course, people can go to your site and just and see the full list for themselves. But the question we always ask is like for a book recommendation or for uh, maybe what are, what are some of your favorite books? Um, so for recommendations, uh, now I actually don't, well, you can imagine what I'm going to say, because it's kind of a mm. variation of what I said five minutes ago, is when I get an email for somebody saying, yeah, what what books do you recommend? What do you think I should read? I'm like, well, I don't know you. I don't know what you're going through. <laughs> Depends what your current problem is. So that's why if you go to sivers.org slash book, I write a few sentences about each book, like just giving it, not trying to do a review, but just a gist of what you'll find in here. So that the whole idea is, you scan this list and whatever problem you're currently wrestling with or whatever idea here seems to captivate your intrinsic interest the most, well, then that's the one you should be reading, not the one that somebody most loudly or most emphatically says you should read, but whatever captures your current interest today. And it doesn't even have to be, you know, your interest this year or last week, but just today, whatever's got your interest today is what you should pick up and read today. And if one third of the way through that book, your attention has waned in that thing, maybe you're reading a book on willpower because today willpower seems like a massive problem and you make it only a third of the way through the book and by (laughs) Friday, willpower isn't seeming like a problem, well, then you can stop reading it. So I was just laughing that you're reading a book on willpower, but you don't even have the willpower to get through the book. (laughs) (laughs) Right, I mean, there's, there's a joke in there, but... (laughs) <laughs> that is a, a good example. Like, you you don't need to force yourself to finish something if you're feeling that you're that you've been satiated on that point. You know, like you might start reading a book about wanderlust and travel, or you know, vagabonding or whatever, and you might make it just a few chapters into it and say, like, you know, I thought this was an interest of mine, but that was a few days ago, and now it's not anymore. You don't need to make yourself finish reading Vagabonding just because somebody said you should. If it's not your interest today, then you can stop. Read something that's more fascinating to you today. So good. I uh, I know you like to prepare for interviews. I don't know how much uh, preparation in terms of 
going back through old emails. I've, I've emailed you many times over the years. I myself went back through and looked what I'd emailed you over the years and I've sent you emails from three different addresses because I was always embarrassed <laughs> about what I'd emailed you previously. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know if you, which ones you, you caught or, or didn't catch in the, in the background but one of the, the ones we talked about, uh, this is going back over two years was about the the ratings how you've got the ratings and you can rank the books on your site you can rank them by you know title by author by your rating you can rank them by and so i was saying you know that's sick we do this book thing as well how can we add these we want to add the ratings and then people to be able to rank the books by each of our our ratings and so we're able to get that up and running uh, eventually with a bit of your assistance Cool. And, and uh, so I guess where I was, was going with that was the one that pops up at the top, it's automatically ranked by, uh, by your recommendations, your ratings out of 10. The one that pops up the top is Sum by uh, David Eagleman. Is that the author's name? Yeah. And I thought, man, I got I to get this. I'm, I'm speaking with Derek Sivers. I'm going to have to get it. I'm going to have to read it before I chat to him. I ordered it like four weeks ago. Obviously, international shipping and postage is, is uh, pretty slow these days. But literally, like, what time is it now? Like, literally eight hours ago, the postie knocked on the door and dropped <laughs> off this package. And inside it was some. And so, I thought, oh, my Aww. goodness, I'm speaking to Derek tonight. I'm going to have to speed read this. So, I, I powered through like the first 20. Uh, and then I thought, hang on. I think if... I was reading it as Derek Sivers would recommend is I wouldn't just speed read all 40 things. I would actually read and then stop and think. And some of them were like, damn, that, they were real eye-openers. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about some and then leading into uh, your project based on some? Ooh, okay, sure. Um, what I love most about the book Sum, and yeah, it's spelled S-U-M for anybody looking it up. Um, I love the format the most. So you did actually already get the gist if you read the first 20. Um, because I love this format of, uh, okay, so some basically, uh, the subtitle is uh, 40 Tales from the Afterlives, or something like that. The big idea is, there's an invisible question asked over and over again, which is, what happens when you die? And so each one of these little tiny chapters, which are just like two to four, five pages long, answers the question, here's what happens when you die, but it answers it deliberately differently and conflicting with all the other chapters. So one chapter will say, uh, when you die, you're greeted by a bunch of thuggish little caveman-looking creatures that keep saying, what is answer? What is answer? And you find out that you were an artificial intelligence program. What you knew of as your life was an artificial intelligence program. And uh, now that the program has stopped running the people that wrote the program are trying to find out what's the meaning of life. That's why they wrote your program. You're trying to tell them the meaning of life. And no matter what you try to tell them, they don't understand and they just keep saying, what is answer? And you realize that if we were to write an artificial intelligence program to figure out the meaning of life, we wouldn't be smart enough to understand what it's trying to tell us. And so then the very next chapter will say, when you die, uh, you find out that in your last life you chose to be a man, but in every lifetime you get to choose what animal you want to be or what creature you want to be. So you remembered a wonderful day in a beautiful field once where you were just admiring a horse grazing in the grass, and you thought what a nice, simple life a horse must have. So you tell your uh, greeter there that I'd like to go back to be a horse now. So 
No sooner said than done, you start to feel your body change, your hands turn into hoofs, and your shoulders get more muscular and longer, and you start to feel your face getting longer, but then you start to feel your brain turning into a horse's brain, and you feel yourself starting to forget what man is. And you realize you've made a horrible mistake because what you liked was being a complex man admiring the simple life of a horse. But if you're just a simple <laughs> horse, you won't be able to appreciate it because you have nothing to compare it against. So you, you try to say, wait, but all that comes out is... <laughs> and at the last minute, you feel... Uh, before you feel your brain completely turn into a horse's brain, your last terrible thought is, I wonder what kind of complex, beautiful creature I must have been before that chose the simple life of a man. And I'm like, whoa! <laughs> I mean, for mm. one, these are just beautiful, amazing little two to three page long short stories. But more than anything, I just love this format of again and again and again asking one question. Uh, in this case, what happens when you die? And answering deliberately different every time. I'm just realizing there's a whole theme to this conversation <laughs> with my whole, you know, opposites. And it's all coming full circle. Yeah, what, what, like a whack on the set at the side of the head, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, so, yeah. So I loved the book Some by David Eagleman. And then one day driving around the road, I just gasped out loud. I was just like, oh my God, I want to write a book called How to Live in that same format. Like each chapter convinced that it has the answer on how to live which deliberately conflicts with all the other chapters. <laughs> and so that's the book that I've been writing for the past year, and it's a blast. I'm having so much fun writing it, and the most fun of all is the whole time I was wondering, like, how's this going to end? <laughs> Do I just list 40 different ways to live and then I'm done? And I came up with an ending, or rather, you know, an ending came to me that was just like, again, created not just a gasp, but a squeal. But I can't reveal the ending yet. But it's a <laughs> uh, it's been a blast to write, and uh, I can't wait to finish and release it. Fantastic. Well, uh, I think that's a an awesome cliffhanger. I've been hanging out for how to live to come out, and I'll keep hanging out. I'm really looking forward to to the day that it, you finally announce that it's ready. It's ready for for people to buy. Uh, as we just wrap up now, I just want to again say a big thank you for. The first book that kickstarted this whole podcast, and then to thank you, but also apologize for some of those early emails I sent you when I was a 22 <laughs> year old uh, that uh, were looking back were extremely cringeworthy. But I, I appreciate your your kind responses to those, and thank you so much for joining me. And uh, is there anything you want to leave us with? No, well, I don't know. For one, just thanks for having me. I, it's fun to nerd out and talk about books, and thanks for the philosopher compliment. And um, yeah, anyone who's listening, just go to Sivers.org. Go to my site. And my favorite thing, the reason I do all these interviews, is to hear from people. Um, so I really like meeting people, especially the kind of people who nerd out <laughs> on the Adams podcast. And uh, yeah, send, uh, send me an email and introduce yourself. Fantastic. If you love books just as much as we do, we'd love to share with you our top 50 best books of all time. It's a free document we've put together compiling our favorite books that we've read and sharing a little bit of insight, the best nugget from each of those books. 
Grab it for free. Head to whatyouwilllearn.com slash top 50. That's whatyouwilllearn.com slash T-O-P-5-0. You'll get our newest version, plus you'll be first in line to get our new and updated version when it's ready.